You're listening to Manx Radio, and I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to the podcast of the Manx Sky at Night with Howard Parkin. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And there is the familiar music that tells us that once again it's time to welcome into the studio Howard Parkin, this time for the November edition of the Manx Sky at Night. Faster my Howard and welcome. Faster my Judith, it's great to be here again. Well, lovely to welcome you in with, again, a packed programme. And keeping topical, it's Halloween. And absolutely. a little later in the programme, you've got a couple of Halloween stories oh, for us. absolutely. We've always got a, a, an appropriate story for the day. Now, let's start off with a look at the autumn skies. And they're getting darker, aren't they? They are indeed. Of course, the clock's gone back now. And it always makes me laugh, though. People think, oh, we get an extra hour of in bed or whatever. The day is still 24 hours long. We haven't lost an hour. All we've done is move the sunrise and the sunsets an hour. The whole point is it's darker and the evening's a lot longer. So we get that extra hour of daylight uh, is added to the morning. So the evenings we get an extra hour of darkness, which means from about 8 o'clock onwards, really, we've got dark enough skies to do some decent stargazing. So hoping that there's not too much cloud cover in November, what have we got to look at? First of all, the autumn planets, what, what's, what are we looking out for there? Well, the most prominent, of course, is the planet Venus. Planet Venus is, is low in the western sky. It's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. It was at its brightest, actually, at the end of October, uh, literally a couple of days ago. And uh, now it's, it's rising higher and higher in the evening sky, in the western sky. And it's now in a dark sky. So as a consequence, you can't miss it. It shines like a beacon over Peel Castle. I always think it's a beautiful shot of Peel Castle with Venus in the sky. It really is a fantastic astro photograph. Um, if you turn around and go towards not about 90 degrees and go towards the southwest or the south, depending on what time you're looking, of course, we've been dominated by the planet Jupiter in the evening sky. Jupiter's been there for a long time, it seems. And of course, it's slowly getting closer and closer to the western horizon and will, in fact, disappear uh, below the horizon uh, and be in the conjunction with the sun in a few months' time. But until then, we've got the very bright Venus and not that far from it, the very bright Jupiter. And just to the right of Jupiter, not easy to spot, but there's not much else in that part of the sky. We've got the planet Saturn, but you really need a pair of binoculars to see that in all its glory. But you can make it out with the naked eye. So that's three planets. I don't think that's bad, Judith. The only ones that's missing are Mars and Mercury. And Mercury's in the morning sky, as indeed is Mars. Mars has just re-emerged from around the back of the sun. And of interesting note is all the spacecraft currently congregating on Mars on the surface and around, around it, um, they've had to suspend communications with them because, of course, the sun's in the way. You imagine a line of sight from Mars um, from the Earth. Well, the sun's in the way, so they, they for safety purposes, for um, operational reasons, they don't tend to communicate with these planets at conjunction. They can't, to be honest with you. Um, they wait a few weeks. So the Chinese rover and the American rovers on Mars and the little helicopter ingenuity, they're having a little rest at the moment until Mars reappears from around the sun after what we call conjunction. Well, you're right about congregating because there is so much activity in space. And of course, as we always do on this programme, a little bit later, we will be looking in more detail at what is happening in, in space. And oh, it's just so much rem- going on. It's incredible. Well, there are some remarkable stories. 
So autumn skies, autumn planets. Now, what about, uh, have we got a meteor shower that we can look forward to? We have indeed. We have a meteor shower, which is a bit of an enigma. The Leonid meteor shower is one of these showers that can be most dramatic and can, in fact, be the most dramatic meteor shower ever seen. Um, the lovely story about the Leonid some years ago when I was actually on a ship and someone came up to me and said, I saw a meteor shower as a child. My dad took me to see this meteor shower in February 1967. And I said, where do you live? And she said, I live in Phoenix, Arizona, or I did live in Phoenix, Arizona. I said, you weren't looking in February 1967. You were looking in November 1966, the peak of the Leonid meteor shower, which was the most dramatic meteor shower ever seen. And I, I think I may have told this story before. I went up to see the shower with my dad in Liverpool all those years ago. We saw three nondescript tiny meteors. But in Arizona, they saw thousands, literally thousands in about an hour. And the peak of the shower was right over Arizona. And that's the shower that we can see in November. Now, we probably won't get too many this year because the moonlight will interfere. We have got a moon not far away from it. And the full moon is, in fact, on the date of the... I'm just looking it up as we speak. The full moon is actually only a couple of days before. And so it really is not going to make a mess of it. But um, it's always worth looking to the eastern horizon on and around the 16th, 17th of November. And you might just get to see some bright meteors. Everyone thinks the sky is static, but it's not. There's always something to see. There's always something going on. You might look for weeks, for hours, for days, whatever. And all of a sudden you'll see the most dramatic shooting star or you'll see an eclipse or a conjunction or a transit or whatever. And um, it just helps us realise just how wonderful the heavens are from just a casual, I say this all the time, just a casual look at the sky. You don't need to know what we're looking at. Just enjoy it and realise how, how beautiful it can look on a crisp, cold, clear night. And one of the things that we most enjoy looking at is the the moon, the effects of the moon, moon oh, on the yeah. water, oh, m- yes. moon moon through the trees, whatever. Yeah. Any particular moon activity this month? Um, not particularly. Well, there is an eclipse, of course. How, how remiss of me not to mention there is an eclipse, but it's not a very good one, I'm afraid. It's um, You get some dramatic uh, lunar eclipses. This is when the Earth gets in the way of the moon and the sun. It passes between the moon and the sun. And we've got an eclipse of the moon taking place on the evening of the 19th of November. It is literally going to be mid-eclipse as the moon rises. The moon will not look the same as it should look when it's rising as a, as a full new moon, uh, full moon. But um, it'll be coloured. It'll be coloured slightly, and uh, the consequence of this partial eclipse. So just something to look out for. Instead of that beautiful silvery moon coming up above, over the horizon, the eastern horizon, it will look a little bit different in colour. That's the effect of the Earth's shadow on it. It's not like a solar eclipse when the moon actually passes physically between the Earth and the Sun. A lunar eclipse is when the Earth's shadow is cast on the moon as a consequence of the Sun being directly behind us as the shadow is, is on the on the moon. The Earth's shadow is, is vast. It goes right out beyond the moon. Now the moon is a quarter of a million miles away and our shadow reaches out beyond a quarter of a million miles. It gives you some idea of the scale and the size of the Earth's shadow, which, of course, reflects on the size of the Earth itself as a celestial body. We think of the Earth as a small planet going around the sun, and it is in comparison to some of the other planets, but its effect, the sunlight on the the Earth's, uh, the effect of the Earth being in the shadow, or the moon being in the shadow of the Earth, can be seen quite dramatically. And it was Anaximenes, back in ancient Greek times, that first saw the, the shadow of the Earth on the moon, and it was curved, and it made him realise the Earth was either a sphere or a, or a plate. You know, they weren't sure what it was. And it, there was this spherical, this curved effect that made him think that, which gave rise to the idea that the Earth was not a solid object sitting in space with a, an edge, a flat edge to it, uh, but was in fact a sphere. That was the first indication that maybe the Earth was spherical and not a flat Earth. You did say that you were going to make this 
programme topical. Before Absolutely. we started, you said I can make Marmanx Sky at Night topical. I can, certainly f- can. For this Halloween. So there it you is. go, Howard. What have you well, got for us? Well, tonight's Halloween. We've got all the things going on in the skies. We've got the witches flying around and all the rest. Well, just spare a thought for the astronomers. Tonight is the night of the ghost of the summer sun. Now, come on, tell us more. Well, what you need to do is go outside. If you're not outside with your hoptune and all the rest, look for the plough. Look for the plough, which will be sitting on its tail. And as it's, it's, it's got its tail up in the sky a bit by this time of night now. We've gone past the early part of autumn. It's now rising um, to the right-hand side of the star Polaris, the pole star. Follow the curve of the handle down and you will come to a star. You come to a star called Arcturus. And Arcturus on Halloween is in exactly the same position that the sun was at the time of the summer solstice. So it's pitch black. Arcturus is there as a star. But three months ago, if you'd stood in the the same location you're at now, the sun would have been in that location. So Arcturus at Halloween is known as the ghost of the summer sun. I, I, I tell you another one, well, not related to it, but this only happened to me a few days ago. And I, you know, I, I, I'm a scientist at heart and everything else. But the other day I was learning a story. I, I'm always looking up the mythology and the folklore of the constellations. And there's a lovely story, which I was going to use in the summer, but I'll mention it now. There's a star called Vega in the constellation of Lyra the Harp. And there's a star called Alta in the constellation of Aquila the Eagle. And the Milky Way passes between them. And there's a lovely Chinese legend. It's a wonderful legend. These are two lovers, and they can't meet because the Milky Way is in the way. The celestial river is in their way. So once a year, a bridge is built between the two lovers, a bridge of magpies. A bridge of magpies, and the lovers can cross the bridge and meet each other for, you know, a romantic trist or whatever. That's the story I learned. Next morning in my road was ten magpies. How's that for coincidence? I've never seen 10 magpies at once, but I said to my wife, I said to Sandra, I said, come and look at this. There were eight in the road and two others flying. And I thought, wow, there's a river of magpies in it. I think think that's beautiful. I'm not going to spoil it by saying (laughs) a word. I think it's a beautiful story. But Howard, we're going to head for our music break now. As we always do after our music break, we're going to talk about what's happening in space. And who could have believed when William Shatner in 1978 recorded his version of Rocket Man, who could have believed that the age of 90, William Shatner would be going, courtesy of Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origins, that he would actually be a rocket man. He certainly was. Now, maybe he's not the greatest singer, but we just have to play that tonight, don't Absolutely, we? Absolutely, 100%. And I think it's going to be... A long, long time to touch down brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, 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 I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fuse out here alone. I think it's going to be a long, long time. Till Touchdown, bring me round again and find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. A rocket man. Burning out his fuse out here alone. Oh. 
Mars ain't the kind of place to raise a kid. In fact, it's cold as hell. And there's no one there to raise them. If you did. And all this science, I don't understand. It's just a job. Five days a week. Rocket man. A rocket man. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The touchdown brings me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man burning out his fuse out here. Alone. That just had to be our music break for tonight. William Shatner, a recording he made in 1978, singing Rocket Man. We had to choose that one, didn't we? we because most certainly did. We both of us actually watched him mm. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, on the 13th of November of October. Going up in the yeah. Blue Origins spacecraft. Yeah. The thing that that struck me about it, Howard, was how very brief the flight oh, is. Oh, 11 minutes. That's all it was. But what people have forgotten that this this spacecraft is well known now. Blue Origins. It's called New Shepard. The reason it's called New Shepard is that's exactly what Alan Shepard did. He went on a suborbital flight. They went up and down. It took him about 15 minutes. OK, this was 11. But basically, the New Shepard rocket does exactly what the Mercury Redstone did back in 1961, 60 years ago. And they did that twice, the Americans. They did that with Alan Shepard and they did it with Gus Grissom before they finally got John Glenn into orbit using a different rocket, the Mercury Atlas. And what's the name of Jeff Bezos's next rocket? The New Glenn. And on the drawing board is another rocket, the new Armstrong, which is the rocket that Bezos is going to use to take people to the moon. The whole thing about commercial spaceflight, 60 years on from the first ever launch of a man into space with Yuri Gagarin in April 61, 60 years on, this year has really been the birth of or the, the start of commercial exploitation of space. And there's so much going on, so much we can talk about. Only a few weeks ago again, we had the, the, the actress and the film director going up into space to film on board the International Space Station. They've now come back safely. Upset Tom Cruise somewhat because Tom Cruise was going to go up on a SpaceX Dragon spacecraft um, and he was going to film, I believe, it's not been uh, officially announced, but it's going to be a scene from the next impossible, uh, Mission Impossible film was going to be filmed in weightlessness. So Tom Cruise is doing that, but um, that's been delayed till at least January now. So these people who've already been, how much talking have they been doing about their experience? Quite a lot. I mean, Bezos um, was quite exuberant about the whole thing when he did it and William Shatner has been since of course and there's such an experience of them I found a little video clip the other day actually a Manx link to this I found a video clip the other day of the first man to go into space commercially was a chap called Dennis Tito in 2001 and he paid 20 million pound for a ticket on a Soyuz spacecraft to go up to the International Space Station and even today he says he still thinks about it every day it was so thrilling the word he uses is exuberant I've never been so exuberant in all my life, floating around in space for three days or eight days, whatever it was. And the lovely Manx link is the second man to go into space on a commercial basis lives in the Isle of Man, Mark Shuttleworth. Now, he doesn't talk about his exploits very often. He's moved on to other things, and fair enough, no problem with that at all. But 
the days of the millionaires going into space, okay, Jeff Bezos is a millionaire, as is Elon Musk, but as you saw a few weeks ago, the Inspiration4 mission, they had, um, I've forgotten his name now for a minute, Jared Isaacman took three ordinary people with him and they went into space for three days in a dragon. And there's so many things going on. I can't keep pace with it, Judith. As fast as some things well, are happening, I've got to look something else up. Well, that, that says something because you really are, you're so interested in everything that, yeah. that you just kind of absorb things with almost without realising and if you're struggling to keep it up to date with them that tells you how busy, <laughs> how busy it is so so commercial space flight is there, is there any way that you can predict where this is going or is it just yeah. going in so many different directions? Well, it's heading so many different directions. But as I said already, Bezos has got the plan to launch suborbital, then orbital, and then to the moon. Um, uh, Elon Musk with SpaceX has already said they're going to Mars. So they've got the moon and Mars is on his drawing board. You've got Virgin Galactic doing suborbital flights. You've got the Axiom Space Station, which is going to be built alongside or next to the International Space Station. And when the International Space Station is deorbited or no longer used, they're going to separate their own space station away and have a private space station up there. And where does all this lead to? Well, one of the great plans which has been talked about by a British company for many, many years is suborbital flights go up into space, fly halfway around the world and then land in Australia, London to Australia in three hours. That is the stuff of science fiction, but is it entirely possible? Once you get away from the Earth's atmosphere into orbit, 17,000 miles an hour, you can fly to Australia, literally. We, we know it takes 90 minutes to go around the world, so, OK, 45 minutes to go halfway around the world. Your problem is landing and taking off. We've pretty well perfected the way to take off. You can do spaceborne, uh, airborne launch vehicles like Virgin Galactic, but the landing of a vehicle that's big enough to carry a number of passengers, fur-paying passengers, that's the problem they've got to solve. When we look at what's been going on this year, who knows where it's going to lead to? You know, I was in Onkin School the other day giving a talk. I was in Onkin School and Braddon School within two days of each other giving talks to the children. And I made the children incredulous because the children always ask me questions about going into space and all the rest. And I said to them, if you work hard and you study hard, in 50 years' time, one of you at least will have been into space. And, of course, the kids just looked at me fascinated. But that is a genuine prediction that anybody who knows anything about spaceflight will tell you. A hundred years ago, Blerio flew the channel, and it was 1909, whatever date it was. But from a hundred years from aviation, from nothing, through to flying everywhere, um, space, with the way technology is going, I think in 50 years' time, commercial space flight will be the thing of the masses. And you'll be going flying around the world to different places in the world, and if need be, by space vehicles to get there quicker. It'll be expensive, but then again, as we all know, the um, spent, uh, wealth does not seem to be a problem for those who really want to do something, as we're seeing with Bezos and Elon Musk and Jared Isaacman, to name but just three. And um, what's the other guy? Richard Branson, of course. There's four who are doing it at the moment. And people are finding the money. Yeah, one last thing on that though, Judith, because people will be listening to this programme thinking, what a waste of money, what are you doing that for? It is not a waste of money. The money you spend on space exploration, be it commercial, be it scientific, be it NASA, be it going to the Mars or whatever, where does that money go? That money goes into research, it goes into development, it goes into jobs, it goes into infrastructure. It generates a huge amount of industry, which is the a future industry that the world is is very buoyant at the moment despite all the problems we've had in recent years the space industry is very very buoyant and not just in america and russia but in europe with the european space agency in china with their own space station they're launching uh, they may have launched it by now another mission to space themselves there's so much going on and we're not 
sending five pound notes or dollar bills in rockets and burning them up. We're not. We're spending that money on Earth, and it's great that we're doing that. It's a lot better than spending it on warfare, which is maybe an alternative. Indeed. We, we were talking about mm. congested conditions in space. Indeed. Three new missions are not going to help us. <laughs> well, they're not, but all three of them have got very special um, elements to them. The first of those I want to talk about first is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is not a replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope. It's looking in different wavelengths and it's looking in an entire different place. It's going to be parked, literally parked in space at a place called the Lagrange Point, which is a gravitationally stable point where it will live for its duration. And that has just transited the Panama Canal. It got through the Panama Canal a couple of weeks ago and is now being um, assembled on board the rocket in French Guiana in the European Space Agency um, site in French Guiana on an Ariane 4 rocket, which will launch it in January. And what's incredible about this mission is, you know, I do cruising and I, I was fortunate to go for the Panama Canal some years ago. This space ship, this James Webb Space Telescope, they didn't tell anybody how it was going to get to French Guiana. They didn't know it was going to be by road or big airplane or whatever, they took it through the Panama Canal. I'd love to have seen that ship transiting the Panama Canal with that on board. But that's due for launch in January, and that's very exciting. And that's going to be way, way out in space, long way from where all the orbital debris is, for obvious reasons. You don't want anything getting near it because it could affect the optics and the um, the signalling equipment, etc. But the other two missions, one, the Lucy mission, doesn't sound particularly exciting, but this is the first time we've sent a spacecraft to Jupiter's orbit to a bunch of asteroids called the Trojans. The Trojan asteroids, and this is a bunch of asteroids in front of and behind Jupiter, and it's going to investigate them and see if we can work out just why these objects are there, what that tells us about the origins of the solar system. And linked into that beautifully is another mission that's launching later this month called the DART mission. And the DART mission is incredible. This is one straight from science fiction. This is one that um, Bruce Willis, because Bruce Willis, of course, famously went up and um, rescued the Earth in the film Armageddon. Well, this is the first step of man's attempts to try and see if we can mitigate a space disaster of an asteroid. What they're doing with this spacecraft is called DART, Dual Asteroid Rendezvous Target, I think it's what DART stands for. They're sending this spacecraft up to a little asteroid called Didymos, and Didymos has going round it a moon, a little tiny lump of rock called Diddy Moon. How imaginative is that? So you've got Didymos and Diddy Moon. And what the spacecraft is going to do, it's going to fire what they call a kinetic impactor. And it's going to fire this metal object at this moon. And it's going to hit the moon at very, very high speed. And they're going to observe it from further back from the spacecraft that sent the impactor. And they're going to see if this tiny moon is deflected at all by this impactor. And if it is, if they change the orbit of it ever so slightly, they can work out what mass they need, what direction they need, and everything else. So this is the first real test of a defence system to prevent an asteroid or a large object coming into the Earth and causing possible serious damage. So it's quite exciting, and that's um, that's heading up into space, I believe, on the 24th of November, subject to launch date being changed or altered, of course. But it's interesting, that, that Howard, isn't it? Because we do see occasionally sensational headlines that something the size of London is heading for oh, the yeah. Earth and and it's almost inevitable that it's going to collide. So it is good to put a balance on it and yeah. say that they're aware of what might happen, only might happen, and are taking steps. Yeah, it's the first step. And obviously, if it works, as I say, they can they can scale it up. We'll say it's 
20 pound in weight and it's hitting a moon that's 200 tons in weight well obviously they can scale up if they do a bigger impactor or even a, a bomb i don't know how they're going to do this but can we physically alter an object an object's orbit and this is what they're doing they're spending the money doing this to see if it'll work and if it does work then the next step will be to obviously try it out on a more significant sized object and then if we do get an impact event uh, scheduled to take place we can maybe do something about it big problem with asteroidal impacts which do occur and there's evidence there's been loads of bombardments of the earth in fact we believe that there's the early bombardment period that brought water to the earth they believe that the comet seeded the Earth with water, which is why we've got the water, which is why it makes life so unique on the Earth. But we don't know when they're coming. That's the problem. And they're so far out and they come so fast that you're not going to say, oh, this will happen in three years' time or six years' time, whatever. It could happen sort of in a matter of weeks. Um, so it's not just a matter of doing something about it if it's coming at us. It's, it's also a question of detecting it earlier, which is why we have more satellites and maybe we put observatories on the moon and places like that. The yeah. whole thing is just huge, and uh, but this is a, a very important first step. Howard, as ever, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight. We look forward to welcoming you back in four weeks' time when we'll be looking at the December and Christmas skies. And that's a scary thought, isn't oh, it? It certainly is. And we'll be talking about the Star of Bethlehem again. We always have to at Christmas time, so different subject on that one. You can always find a different oh, yes. slant on oh, these. Yes. Howard Parkin, Faster My. Faster My, Judith. Station Manx Radio.